Uh, we are in the study of the book of Revelation. We call it Revelation Light because we're not going to get all bogged down with calories and everything like that in it. We're not going to, you know, try to over-cipher it and overthink it and everything like that because the world has a tendency to do that, uh, and it, which is really unfortunate because... Uh, the book of Revelation is just, it's just a phenomenal book. It really is. And some of the things that John is privy to, and some of the things that John is allowed to see, uh, it's pretty impressive. You know, because there's a lot of times when, you know, somebody, you know, a prophet or something like that has an interaction with God, you know, it's, it's, we, we kind of get a two-dimensional look at what happened. Uh, and here, in this case, John's going to give us, you know, in very graphic and glowing detail what's going on. And uh, it's just absolutely wonderful. We are going to, and we're in, this is our fourth week. We're going to cover chapters four and five. We're going to try to clip along at about two chapters a week. We'll see how that goes. If not, we'll just sit down and do the best we can um, because there's just so much in it. I mean, we could literally spend a couple of years and I promise you, it'd still be pretty exciting. Uh, you might still get tired of it, but that's okay. Uh, but you'd really enjoy it. But we're in chapters 4 and 5. And if you remember last week, you know, just kind of a quick review from last week. You know, we looked at it and we, John introduced the setting. He introduced the circumstances of his writing. Uh, you know, which is to say that we understand that John was imprisoned. John was, you know, for his work in the gospel. And he was a fellow partaker in, in all of the things that that were going on, including the tribulation and, and everything else. Uh, we saw that, you know, with graphic imagery, John tells us of the appearance of Christ. You know, and when I say graphic, that's not the same way, well, that was a graphic movie, or, oh, that was a graphic language, or something like, no, no, just, you know, just, you know, very, uh, very descriptive. You know, not very, not passive. You know, just, and, and, I, and I imagine John probably kind of wrestled even with what words to use. You know, how do you describe, you know, the best meal you've ever had? You know, it's tough to describe. You know, how can you describe the feeling, you know, the, the first time you saw, you know, your child, you know, being born? You know, how do you put that into words? I mean, that's nothing compared to what John got to do. When he turned around and saw Jesus. Because keep in mind, remember, the book of Revelation, it is a revelation of Christ. It is apocalyptic. The apocalypse meaning revelation, not meaning battle or fierce this or anything like that. The word apocalypse means the revelation. This is the revelation of Christ. Everything else that goes on in this book you know, is somewhat secondary to the central theme of the revelation of Christ. And as Christ is revealed, one of the things that we begin to see in the book of Revelation is a very different form of Jesus than what we're used to. It's not that it's a different Jesus. It's just that the Jesus of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, well, had a lot of humanity to him. You know, that was God's way of, of trying to sort of you know, capture who his son was and, and to do so in a way. And also, it also gave the ability to show patience and kindness and love and be an example along that lines. But it was a humanity-based revelation. This isn't going to be humanity-based. John's going to get a sense of the full aura of who Jesus is. 
And we saw that last week, just a little bit. The revelation of the Lamb begins. We had, you know, some key messages to the seven churches. You know, you step back and you strip it all. It's all about staying faithful. Not just staying, not just sort of hanging in there. You know, there's too many other epistles in the New Testament that talk about just hanging in there. You know, just, you know, sticking to it, trials and tribulations, everything like that. It's not some generic reference to just hanging in there. It is remaining faithful to the gospel. Remaining faithful to the cause of Christ. Understanding, you know, not just, you know, the, the, that, but, you know, just the revelation of Christ as it pertains to this purpose. You know, and that none are to be lost. You know, they need to finish what got started. Okay, so now we're going to move on. Now we start in chapter 4. Now in chapter 4, we start really getting into some imagery. That's exciting, isn't it? It is for me. Hopefully it is for you guys too. But when we do this, especially chapters 4 and 5 are probably two of the preeminent chapters in this book. And if you don't get your head around what's going on in chapters 4 and 5, the rest of the book is almost a waste to read. I I, I shouldn't say a waste to read, but if you can't get your head around what's going on in 4 and 5, I'm not talking about the imagery. I'm not talking about what does this mean and what does this mean and everything like that. I'm talking if you can't get your head around it, we got to stay here. So we're going to stay in chapters 4 and 5, until everybody raises their hand and says, okay, we think we got it. In which case, you'll be dismissed tonight. All right? So you might want to pay attention. But there's a right and a wrong way to go about looking at 4 and 5. Okay? The wrong way, you miss the whole story. If you go about it the wrong way, you'll have a tendency to overemphasize specifics and details. You'll neglect the key principles of the book, which was, this is about something which is soon to happen. This is not something, he's not you know, getting this vision of something that's going to happen thousands of years in the future. It is something that is going to happen very, very quickly. The wrong way is to forget something very, very important. And that is, John is writing about what he saw. Now that's very, very important. We are reading John's description of what he saw. Okay, did you kind of understand that? Okay, you know, so John saw something and he's going, you may have used completely different words. You may, if you had, you know, if God decided that you were the one that needed to write this down, you may have used slightly different words. And that becomes important because so many times people want to get so hung up on some of these details and they forget John's charge was to write the things that he saw. And we're going to read about it. That's the wrong way to do it. The right way is to see the whole story. To truly see the message. To focus on the overt message. It's not a hidden message. It's not some little, you know, kind of buried down in there like some little nugget or some lost coin or anything like that. The message is over the top. It's overt. It is right there in our face, if we'll let it be. It's to feel the revelation. And I don't mean, you know, in some kind of weird fall over into the aisle kind of a thing. Please don't do that. I mean, we already sort of established last week that I come from a family of relative indifference. And so, you know, we certainly don't need anything. Like, that's not what I'm talking about. But, I mean, to really fully... Feel that, that, that Jesus is being revealed in this. And finally, to bask. And I mean really to bask 
in the details as they underscore the story. Too many times what ends up happening is when people look in the book of Revelation, specifically around, you know, 4 and 5 or any of the other chapters, what they have a tendency to do is they go, like some microscope, and start counting amoebas. And what well, does this mean? And, this mean? and they're so buried down there that they miss sight of the whole story. If you really want to fall in love with the book of Revelation and have a greater appreciation for the way that God conveys certain messages and the Lamb that we serve, start with the story because then all of a sudden some of these details become magical. Only if you get the story. And, and here's one example. So let's turn, you know, in, in Revelation chapter 4, one of the things it's going to talk about is, look down there at verse 6, and before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. Okay, so John sees this sea of glass. You would be surprised. Maybe not. You'd be disappointed at the number of articles that are out there. The number of people that sit back and say, well, the sea of glass is this. The sea of glass stands for this, and it's this, and it's kind of this portion of the region, and some say, no, it's this, and everything like that, get so hung up on it that they miss kind of the story and what's going on. Because you've got to think about the sea of glass from a magnifying standpoint. Look at that picture. It's kind of a cool picture, isn't it? It's kind of, you know, you kind of, kind of need some sunrise and everything like that. It's taken, you know, across a very still lake. But now look at the lake. What I did was I sort of cut out the bottom part. This is what the picture really looks like. You see the difference? Am I the only one that sees it? Well, I really can't see it. Well, yeah, that's not a bad picture. Ah. That's pretty cool, isn't it? It's little things like that that you begin to understand as John sees this. John's not trying to point specifically to what the crystal sea means and who that is or anything like that. Instead, one of the things we're going to see is that's the only way that John can really describe just how the throne of God shines and glows and does so in such a way that the only thing that he can liken it to is a reflection across a still sheet of glass, water, that just makes a picture go from that to that. Okay, let's get going. All right, chapter 4, verse 1. And after these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the voice which I had heard, like the sound of the trumpet, spoke to me and said, Come up here, I will show you what must take place after these things. This is the transition. So Jesus has revealed himself. He knows he's talking to Jesus. Jesus has sort of you know, said, I am the first, I am the last, I am the Alpha, the Omega. I got this under control. John, first of all, I want you to send this message to the seven churches. Now, this is how he transitions. And just imagine the transition. Now, remember, John's caught up in the Spirit. We don't know exactly how this looked or anything like that, so don't give, it's not overly subscribed to you know, any picture that I put up there because it's going to be wrong. Okay, it's just the best we can come up with here on this side of eternity. But here's the transition. You know, there's this open door, and John's going to get to walk through it. Now, I don't know if, and my guess is John never took a step. 
My guess is he was either sitting or laying or something like that. I mean, physically, this is, you know, he's not going up a set of stairs. But it's, it's kind of like a dream. I hate to say the word dream, but if I do that, at least you guys can kind of connect with it. And so John is about to go through this door. And he's going to transition. And he's really going to see some cool things on the other side of that. And I, I just think that's just a wonderful way for John to sort of be introduced to what's about to happen. You know, because if you just stop and think about it, because it, it isn't just that, you know, a door was open and John let himself in, right? The door was open and John was asked to come on in there. And he says, and again, come up here. I'm going to show you, and again, what does he say? Things that must take place real soon. So even as he walks through the door, the voice of Jesus is reminding him, John, you're about to see something. And you're going to see some things that are about to soon take place. Okay, so first thing he talks about, we talk about the throne. And that's verses, you know, basically, you know, chapter 4, you know, really kind of through the end of the chapter. Uh, but, you know, in the beginning there, he's going to see a throne. In verses, you know, 2 through 4 and well, actually two all the way through down through six. He's going to describe this throne that he sees. And you can go through it, but you know some of the key things he talks about, it's occupied by not just one, but in the better translations, the one. In fact, in your Bible, when it, if you look at that, one is capitalized, isn't it? In most of your translations, it's that way for a reason. Because what John is about to see, and again, this sets the stage because John is now going to get a sense of the true, you know, the sanctity of God and the sanctity of the throne and the glory of the throne and the glory and the aura of, of God. And he's going to see, and that is going to, we're going to establish that first and foremost because there's a lot of tribulation going on for God's people. There's a lot of rough things happening to Christians. There's a lot of reason to doubt. There's a lot of reasons to fear. There's a lot of reasons to worry. There's a lot of reasons to cry. There's a lot of reasons to hide. There's a lot of reasons to stop being faithful for God's people during that time. And even for God's people today. There's a whole lot of reasons you can come up with to sort of sheepishly hide your faith. And before Jesus is going to reveal how he's going to deal with some of this, the first thing he's going to reveal, this is the Christ whom we serve. Now, they talked about a throne when Jesus was on earth. They talked about a kingdom. But John had no way of really fully understanding that. Now John gets a glimpse. And the very first thing he sees is the throne. And not just the throne occupied, but the throne occupied by the one. A throne capable of being occupied by only one. And again, all of this underscores the fact that everything that's about to be revealed is that Jesus is the one. He's got this. And so he talks about occupied by the one. He, t he uses words like jasper and sardius and a rainbow and emerald just to get some sense of just sort of how it shines. You know, it just looks like a, just like a precious stone. 
and the beautiful colors of jasper and sardius and emerald. And if you've ever seen, you know, some of those, you know, just really high quality gems, I never have, but you see them on TV or anything like that, and, you know, of any size and the way that light hits it and just sort of the magical colors that just come out of it. The rainbow. That's what John sees. I don't know if he's, he's not specifically saying it is made out of emerald. I don't know what it's made out of. But I know that there is nothing here on earth that is possibly, you know, that is in any way worthy of the throne of God. But it's John's way of saying it just, it just looked like gems. And then there was lightning, he says. Not like some Kansas thunderstorm or anything like that, but just the power. It's just that it was the throne. It was not just a chair in the middle of a nice room or anything like that. It was the throne. And and so with passion and drama like thunder and lightning, John says, this is the throne. And one is sitting there. There's seven lamps. A fire burning in front of it. The seven spirits of God. We'll talk about that later. But you know, remember, the number seven is perfection. It is complete. And he goes on to say there's this sea of glass. Now, I don't know what it looks like. I can't possibly get my head around it. But you know, there's people that have painted pictures, and here's just one. I don't know. It's, I, I know it's wrong. And he goes on then to talk about... So that's kind of the, the, that scene. Now we got to quickly move, and then you know we talk about you know the throne, and then we come down to uh, verse six. And one of the things it says in verse six is that there are four living creatures around this throne. Now I skip back uh, on kind of on the outside. He talks about twenty-four elders with robes. And he even goes on to say, you know, golden crowns on their head. We'll get to those in a second. Twelve's a great number. Back then, two times twelve was even better. And the vision that you begin to see unfolding here is not just the throne of God, but the throne of God worshipped for eternity by all of creation. Remember Paul said... Every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, that isn't just here on earth. That isn't just during the judgment. What John begins to see is all those, you know, and again, when we think of elders, we think of those sort of in sort of a preeminent position. They are there surrounding this. And he talks about these four creatures. And we look at the four creatures and look what he kind of says about them. You know, one looks like a lion. It didn't say it is a lion. Like a lion. Like a calf. Or your, your version may say an ox. Like that of a man. Like a flying eagle. Okay, these are the four immediately kind of around there. And again, I don't really know exactly how that works. Now, if you want to go back uh, to Ezekiel chapter 1 or Ezekiel chapter 10, what, one of the things you'll see is it's very, very similar to the vision that Ezekiel had. And with it all, what you begin to understand is just kind of the relevance of the lion, oh, that which is powerful and strong you know, you know, and mighty. The king we think of with a lion, you know, with a calf or with an ox, typically you think of strong. With a man, you think of intellect. 
with a flying eagle, you think of you know precision of eyesight and and swiftness, you know whatever. And that's what John sees. And remember, he said, like a man, like a lion, like an ox, like an eagle. And he goes on to talk about how they had you know six sets of uh, of wings, you know, which is kind of interesting. You know, if you it's, it's just for fun, if you want to go back to Isaiah chapter six. Everybody, Isaiah chapter 6. You know, he talks about, you know, this is very similar. Isaiah chapter 6, uh, talked about seraphim. He's, he gets to seize all, you know, he sees all of the, you know, this vision he has. Remember we said that in the book of Revelation, there's a lot of references back to the Old Testament. Not specific quotations, but references, you know, and allusions to, you know, kind of alluding to, you know, various stories, various visions, various things in the Old Testament. Well, here's one. You know, six sets, uh, six wings, you know, um, Isaiah saw, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. Okay, so it is a vision that is not uncommon to John. Again, it's not just a vision that's not uncommon to John, but when John describes this, it has meaning to the Christians in the first century who would have been tied back to, you know, the, the, the sights and the teachings and the writings of Isaiah or Ezekiel. And so, again, there's, this, there's a consistency. It means something. It resonates to them. Maybe a little bit more than it probably does to us today. But, again, he goes on to say they've got eyes just everywhere. Well, what's that for? That seems kind of creepy almost, doesn't it? You know, just eyes and everything. Well, that's because we think of it as a horror movie or something like that. What John's trying to imply is they see everything. They know everything. And so, you know, it's, there's a lot of people that will worry a lot about who these creatures are. But most important is what they say and what they do. Because what the Bible says about them in verse 8 is all day, all night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. That's where we need to get our head around. Oh, what about the wings, and what about this, and what about the face like a lion? Okay, that's important. To understand just the totality that creation serves the Lord and bows in reverence to him. But the important thing is they keep saying, holy, holy, holy. In fact, it goes on to talk about then the 24 elders in verse 10 fall down before him, John says. You know, those that sort of represent, you know, sort of, you know, kind of, I don't want to say, uh, you know, highly respected, highly exalted they fall down. And they say, Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory, honor, and power. And so in chapter 4, with great graphic language and everything, we see the throne of God. And not only and we see Christ seated on that throne, and we see all of humanity, all of creation, all those that represent anything in society, bowing down and saying, you are worthy. You are the Almighty. 
Not just one time, but continually, over and over again. And this is so important because we're going to see that one of the reasons that we serve Christ, one of the reasons that Jesus is able to do the things that he does, isn't just because he's the son of God, is because he is the only one worthy to do the things that we're going to read about. He's the only one worthy of going to the cross. He's the only one worthy to stand there on that day of judgment as our advocate. He is the only one worthy, and because of that, he's worthy of praise and honor and glory. He has the power, the elders are going to say. You know, I don't know if you, uh, you know, read it or you saw it, uh, I think it was today or yesterday, but, you know, one of the things, oh, wait, we'll get to it in a second, because I, after all, I'm going to keep you guys late if we don't get to it. Okay, so now we come on to chapter 5. I mean, there's just so much stuff here. So now we go to chapter 5. And John's looking at this, and he says in verse 1, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside, and on the back, it was written inside and on the back, and it's sealed with seven seals. All right, now we're going to really start getting imagery. But first he says, I see this book. Now understand, John really doesn't know what's in this book. Has no clue. He says, then I saw a strong angel. Huh, not just some little timid angel running around. Not some little bitty angel running around. Hey, hey, hey. You know, I don't know if that's what a little bitty angel sounds like. That's kind of, you know, what we tend to, at least what I think. But the strong angel. And keep in mind, angels are viewed as those creatures that are powerful. And so this is the strong angel. You would think if anybody up there could take care of some business down here on earth... I mean, we saw regular angels in the Old Testament come down and do some things. We saw regular angels come down and minister to Christ and do some pretty cool things here on earth. I wonder what a strong angel can do. Well, the Bible says the strong angel basically stood there and says, who's worthy to open the book? Who can do it? The strong angel acknowledges in heaven He's not worthy. He's not powerful enough. He's not deserving. He is not the one that can do it. And so he asks, who can do it? No one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. That shows just how special this book is, but more importantly, it shows just how special Christ is. Because what John says is, and, and really, you know, a better translation, is nobody in heaven, nobody on the face of the earth, nobody in the bowels of hell can open this book. That's the realization of what's going on. There is no other. You know, and, and actually, John doesn't come to this revelation yet. Because if you look at it, John begins... To weep. And so who's worthy to open it? John begins to weep in verse 5. John probably doesn't even understand why he's weeping. I mean, if you, and this is kind of one of those, when you're caught up in the Spirit, there's emotions that go with that. How many times, how many of you husbands, have ever had your wife wake up from a dream mad at you? All of you have. A bunch of liars. 
I hear my wife talk. They call her, and oh, I can't believe he did that. It was a dream. I mean, my wife, I mean, there have been several times she wakes up, not even sure what I did. I, I certainly don't know what I did. She doesn't even know what I did, but, she, but the dream somehow was real. Everybody's looking at me. Oh, but funny people. Okay, that John doesn't necessarily understand the book, the contents of the book, the relevance of the seal or anything like that, but he weeps because he knows there's something special about this. And what he knows is there's something magnificent, there's something unique about this, there's something very special. And nobody can open up the book. Nobody is worthy of breaking the seal. Ah. Until, he says, verse 4, he began to weep. Verse 5. One of the elders says, stop your crying. Stop weeping. There's behold, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David. But just stop and imagine that scene. How many of you have ever wept? Have ever cried? Have ever been so sad that just tears just flowed down or you just couldn't, you just couldn't comp, I mean, oh, maybe over the, you know, over something. Only to find, and then it got better. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, I do it every morning with my car keys. You know, I mean, it's just kind of, and I blame everybody and the dog and everything like, although there is a funny story. We did have the dog actually take the keys one time and leave it in the middle of the backyard, but they were Anita's keys, so it was okay that day. But, but if you ever have understand what it's like to weep and to cry and to mourn and to worry, and then have a doctor tell you it's going to be okay, if you've ever worried about your child only to have everything go, that's, I can't possibly craft the words for what John is going through. And that's the best I can come up with, guys. Because that's what John felt. And remember in chapter 1, or when Jesus first interacts with John, and he falls down, John falls down, all Jesus does, he puts his right hand on the back of his, on his back and says, basically, I got this. I am the Alpha, I am the Omega. John weeps, John mourns, laments the fact that that book cannot be opened. And then one of the elders says, stop your weeping. The lion's got this. The lion from the tribe of Judah. And not only does he go on, but in in this description, you know, the lion, part of Judah, who has overcome, and that's important in all of this, who was, who is, who is to come. Jesus says, death no longer has any dominion over me. I've got the keys to heaven, and I've got the keys to hell. And so what the elder there is saying, hey, hey, don't cry. Stop weeping. Behold, the lion from the tribe of Judah who has overcome. And again, in all of this, and the reason for all of this, he he describes this because, why? Because this is exclusive. Only Christ can open this book. It's, It's not only just exclusive, he is worthy. This isn't just a capability thing. 
Okay? This isn't just kind of one of those things, who's actually capable of doing such and such and such and such? Who is certified to do such and such and such? This isn't one of those. It's exclusive because he is worthy. Again, nowhere in all of this is talking about how Jesus is capable of doing it. No, it's not that. That's not what John sees. John sees as he is worthy of it. And there's glory in this. You know, I mean, this is not one of those jobs that you sort of get. And you know those jobs, you know, whether it's taking out the trash or something like that. Oh, you're the only one that can do that. You're the only one that can get the ladder and change the light bulb. And that doesn't happen at my house. I'm talking about your house and, and, and everything like that. Oh, Dad, I can't do that. Only you can do that. We're not talking about this type of interaction. It's exclusive because of he's worthy. Why is he worthy? Because he has over. Which is the Bible's way of saying death has no dominion over him. He has suffered. He has risen again. He's overcome the grave. He is the only one that can do that. He is the only one that has done that. And so he will have. And then he goes on to say, and then I saw between the throne of the four living creatures and the elders of the Lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came, he took it out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne, and when he had taken the book, the twenty-four elders, the, 20, the four living creatures, the twenty-four elders, fell down before the Lamb, each one with a harp, golden bowls full of incense, which are now the prayers of the saints. Okay, there's some imagery that goes on here. And one, and one of the things that kind of happens is you begin to see a transition. And now we see Jesus as the lamb. Not just any lamb. But even as in this vision of the lamb, there's the acknowledgement that he was at one time slain for our behalf. That he one time bled for the sins of all. And again, remember, that's the context of what the elder said. He has overcome. Not just God trusts him to do it, God made him capable of doing it. He has overcome. He is worthy of opening this. And as the lamb gets the book. And remember, you know, just there, and again, you begin to see the lamb. Remember, the, the concept of the lamb was talked about even on earth. But they just couldn't get it, could they? Because a lamb was a, it was a, it was a material thing. It was a mortal thing. If you walk the face of the earth, back when Jesus was on the face of the earth and the disciples, you kill a lamb, it's dead. It, I mean, it, it, it's dead. Not anything you can do about it. It's dead. It bleeds out. But here they begin to understand the lamb was slain, but here's the lamb, John says. I'm seeing it. And as, and what's going to happen is he is now going to open the book. And again, all of this leading up to the opening of the book in chapter 6, which we'll get to next week, is understand just the absolute nature of God and of His Son, Jesus. And what that really, truly means. And as this is about to take place, again, the four living creatures that sort of represent sort of all of of humanity and, and all of creation, they bow down and they worship Him. You know, the leaders, if you will, they bow down and worship. And before him, before the Lamb, 
Look what they've got. They've got a harp. They've got incense. Again, these are... These are visual images from the Old Testament you know, that were part of worship and part of you know, you know, the presence of God and, and sanctity and everything like that. But they had these golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now remember, what was the role of incense back in the Old Testament? Or even back in, in the New Testament? So it was, you know, it was you know, kind of this aroma, wasn't it? To remind to make aware of. And we talked, you know, many times when God was pleased with people, he would talk about how he acknowledged and how he accepted and how he respected the smell of the incense of their offerings. And what a beautiful thing that was back in the Old Testament. All right, here we go. The prayers of the saints. This is so absolutely beautiful. Because they are bowing down, they're giving God the glory, and what John sees visually, and the essence that he gets, is the prayers of the faithful, waft up to heaven, just like incense. That to me is such a beautiful scene. And maybe it's because, it might just be, I'm the only one, some days that wonders, did God... Hear my prayer. Did God listen to my prayer? Is God even aware of my prayer? And I imagine back in the first century when you've got Nero and Augustus and everybody like that running around killing Christians and tormenting them and persecuting them. When you meet in, you know, the, in, in a small room and you've got to be real quiet because you're afraid the Roman army is going to come drag you out. When you give all that you own and all that you make to the emperor, when they single you out and they make fun of you, and again, they torment your lives and they kill for no very, very good reason, because of your faith, it would be very, very easy as you go to bed at night to doubt whether or not a prayer is really worth it. Does God even notice? Look at all, and remember he talked, we talked last week about some of those churches, tremendous poverty, tremendous tribulation, awful persecution, both physical and mental, economical, and everything like that. And what John sees is before the throne of God, the prayers of the saints drift up like incense. It is a beautiful scene. And even though it's talking about things that were about to take... Now remember, it's about things that were about to take place. The throne has always been there. What goes on at the throne has always been there and always will. Now this is not some temporary throne of God kind of a thing. This is the eternal throne of God we're going to see. And before the eternal throne of God, where all of creation bows down before him, gives him honor as the Almighty, the prayers of the saints drift up like incense. Okay, let's keep going. And they sang a new song. They already sung two songs before, right? 
the holy, holy, holy. And then they sang, you know, worthy art thou. Again, the holiness of God, you are worthy back there in verse in chapter four. And so now everyone sings, worthy art thou to take the book. Now, I don't know what, you know, kind of what, uh, what the tune is to this song or anything like that. You know, it's just kind of a way of saying, you know, they're saying that worthy art thou, worthy art thou to take the book, to break the seals. Why? Ah, for thou was slain. And didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Oh, it's magnificent. I mean, it's like goosebump magnificent. Because it isn't just worthy are you because you're capable. No, worthy are you because you purchased humanity. Because you did that with your blood. And he goes on to say, every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation, thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God that they will reign upon the earth. Not just did you redeem them, but you have made them you know, royalty. You've established a kingdom. Notice, look what he says. Thou hast made a kingdom. Not he's going to make a kingdom. Hopefully we'll get to the kingdom or anything like that. No, he's worthy. Why? Because he redeemed with his blood. He established the, the kingdom. Real time here, folks. And I looked, he says, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures. Now he sees many angels and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. All of a sudden, John just sees angels everywhere. All of heaven is now surrounding the throne, saying in a very loud voice, louder than what I'm even getting to, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power, riches and wisdom and might and glory and honor and blessing. Wow. You ever notice, you've been here on one of those Sundays when we've got a lot of people? You know, and it's just happening one of those Sundays, a lot of visitors, you know. Everybody, nobody sleeps in. It's you know, usually kind of right over there at the daylight savings when they didn't realize or anything like that. But everybody's here. And everybody's singing loud. And they're singing those, you know the songs. You know, not those obscure songs that Mark Yakely likes to lead or anything like that. I'm talking about the good, tried, and true traditional ones. Yeah, I looked to make sure he wasn't here. But anyways... <laughs> And you know what that's, when everybody sings, I mean, I love the new, the new hymns, don't get me wrong, but what I love about the traditional ones, or the old ones, if you will, is the fact that everybody sings them. I mean, that's, it's got nothing against new or anything, it's just everybody sings them, because everybody knows them, and they sing better, they sing louder. And when that happens, this place is pretty cool to be in. I mean, especially if it's one of those Sunday mornings where I happen to be filling in for Steve and I'm sitting up here listening. Oh, my word. There's something about it. And that is nothing, nothing compared to what John got to witness. As all of heaven countless sing, worthy is the Lamb. 
And every, look at verse 13, every created thing which is in heaven and earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things in them, I heard them saying to him who sits on the throne, to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. The four living creatures kept saying, amen. The elders fell down and worshiped. Again, notice the scene. Because all of this is being described as, you know, that just, whoop, how'd I go backwards? There we go. Because the whole point of all of this is to give us a sense of the throne and the one who occupies it. And before we get on to anything else, before John is allowed to see anything else, and John's going to see some pretty cool stuff, what God wants John, what Jesus came to show John, is this is the throne of the Almighty. And this is the one who sits there. And John was given some visual clues that this was a pretty cool throne with thunder and lightning and just the colors and the rainbows and the brightness and everything like that and the way it just continually reflected. But not only that, he was shown that all those, every knee, Every tongue. Jesus is Lord. He is worthy. To him be the glory. Everybody. Countless hosts of heaven. Jesus is the Almighty. And that becomes the backdrop. Again, remember we talked about this. It's the book of Revelation. Not the revelation of some Armageddon-like you know, battle or anything like that. Not the revelation of the end of the world. No, the revelation of Christ. And John got to see just a glimpse of it. He got to see his throne. He got to see the manner in which he sits on the throne. And more importantly, he got to realize just the respect, the earned respect that all of creation gives Christ. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, dear God, we cannot possibly fathom the sovereignty of your Son. Father, the power of the Lamb, of the Lion, the sacrifice of the Lamb. God, we understand through just this glimpse an account of an a glimpse, God, that, that all of creation recognizes your Son's deity, recognizes that he alone is worthy, that he alone is capable, and that, Father, your throne is one of power and exclusivity. And, Father, we just fall before it in great humility, embarrassed by who we are, But God, we are so inspired by the love that you have and the power that you have over all that we would ever fear and cry over and fret over. And God, our prayer is that you be with us. God, thank you for the reminder that you do hear our prayers. You do hear our and see our tears. God, we look forward to the day that we can join this same group, and that, Father, we can sing your praises for eternity. 
Until then, God, we ask for strength. We ask for wisdom. God, help us with our faith. Through Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen.